The date is the 24th of November 2020 and our guest today is Michael Maston Duno, Nelson A. Rockefeller Professor of Government here at Dartmouth. Thanks for joining us Professor, it's great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, yeah. So before we get started with today's topic, um, we ask that our guests, you know, introduce themselves briefly as well as any areas of interest that you've been working on right now, just for our listeners' benefit. Certainly. I'm a professor of government at Dartmouth. I've been in that department uh, over 30 years, specializing in international relations, the world economy, and United States foreign policy. Excellent. Before we start our discussion proper, I was hoping to ask whether there were any particular academic frameworks that one might use when discussing foreign affairs um, that might be useful going into this talk. Uh, yes, I mean, there are many, and um, I'm always <laughs> delighted to talk about the relevance of you know, academic theories and frameworks going into practical public policy issues. But when, when I think about you know, the presidential transition the United States is going through right now, uh, I guess two really come to mind that are particularly appropriate. One would be liberal internationalism. And if you think about this, this is a framework that comes out of international relations theory, liberal theory, uh, but it's also, uh, I think, an important policy framework. Uh, it's been, in, a, in effect, the reigning ide ideology of the United States for uh, the past 70 years, up to the Trump administration. And it's basically an argument that says that the United States is indispensable to world order, uh, that the United States is better off in a world that looks like the United States, dem democracies and capitalist economies, and it's a system that on balance is beneficial to the United States. I think this is relevant because it was kind of taken for granted for decades and then came under increasing pressure and Donald Trump wrote that pressure uh, to his election in 2016. And in effect, what he did was reject the premises of liberal internationalism. And so it raises the important question now uh, is the United States going to, if you will, revert to the norm under a Biden administration, or is it too difficult to do that uh, or too challenging to do that because of the things that have intervened uh, in the interim? So I think that's a big question that comes directly out of that uh, international relations theory framework. I think another framework you'd want to think about is the relationship between uh, domestic politics and foreign policy. Uh, foreign policy is made by elites, but we know in the United States, domestic political sentiment is never far from the surface. I mean, we know that most importantly in terms of interventions like uh, the Vietnam War being the classic case of it. But even just generally, when you think about foreign policy, you have to think about domestic support. And domestic support for liberal internationalism, even before Trump, had been waning in part because the public saw it as leading to the so-called endless wars in the Middle East. And after the financial crisis, there was a sense that maybe the United States wasn't getting the kind of benefits out of the world economy that liberal internationalist elites had promised. Uh, so I think when you combine these two things, the, the liberal internationalist focus and the role of domestic politics, uh, you get a nice angle into the kind of challenges that a new Biden administration uh, will have to face. One of the things that I guess is implied from what you're saying is 
that liberal internationalism is inherently interventionist in some form. Would you say that that's, is that always true or? Uh, so that's a great question. I don't know if it's inherently uh, interventionist, but there's an interventionist temptation in liberal internationalism because there is a strong ideological sense among liberal internationalists. And this is, by the way, both on the left and on the right. I mean, if you think about uh, the George W. Bush era um, neoconservatives, they shared with liberal internationalists the sense that the United States uh, had both an obligation and an opportunity to remake the world, right? So, so although you don't have to intervene, there's a logic or an impulse that pushes you towards that because you have both uh, power and motivation, right? You have the power to change the world in what you see as a positive direction, uh, and you have the motivation to do it because you think it's not just good for the United States, but good for everyone else. You know, it's, uh, it's sometimes been said that uh, Americans uh, see the world in the, in the following way, you know, inside every foreigner is an American struggling to get out. You know, everyone would like to be like us if they could. It, that's an ideological position. It's probably not accurate, uh, but if it affects policy to the extent policymakers feel like we can actually make the world better if we just tweak things a little bit using our power, whether that be, you know, in Vietnam in the 1960s or Libya in 2011 or Afghanistan and Iraq after the war on terrorism. Yeah, you mentioned the, um, I guess, link between domestic politics and international affairs. And I'm curious, that quote you said about there's an American in all of us um, struggling to burst out, is that something that is a bottom-up view or is that really very elite-driven? I mean, you mentioned going back to Vietnam War and, you know, post-World War II. Is that is that a creation of that post-war era? I think it is more elite-driven than it is mass-driven uh, in the sense that for a lot of Americans, and this is a traditional, you know, 1776 forward kind of view, uh, kind of instinctive American feeling, especially if you think about the heartland and, and not the coast is kind of leave us alone. You know, we, wanna, we want to engage with the world, but the world's problems, despite what John Dickey said at Dartmouth are not our problem. You know, I think that's a, a common view, and it's a view that American elite politicians always have to manage when they think in, you know, their purportedly more enlightened way that actually what's good for the world is good for America. Sometimes we just have to struggle to make Americans see that. And, and I think the Obama administration was a great example of that. I consider him like a reluctant hegemonic leader, like he believed in the basic mission, but he knew that it was a hard sell, which is why he was a bit more conservative on intervention and also trying to find ways to straddle this, you know, question of whether America should be promoting trade deals while at the same time, you know, defending American workers. So, so I think it is more of an elite view and it's, an, and it's a post-war elite view. It's certainly not the view Americans uh, took before that, even though there was kind of, you know, in the late 19th century, early 20th, this kind of imperial bout that the United States had where it thought about how it's our obligation, you know, almost in a colonial sense to, you know, educate or, or make the world better uh, by imposing our, our values and institutions on it. But I think it really becomes full blown after World War II.
I'd like to take a step back and maybe just ask you very broadly, um, in your view, what has characterised US foreign policy over the last four years and how, what are the major ways in which this is going to change um, going into a Biden presidency? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big question. That's the great question. I, I, would, I guess I would think about it this way. Uh, in the last four years, uh, Donald Trump personally, as well as his administration, I think defined foreign policy, I mean, if you think about it in terms of tone, uh, as one of defiance and grievance. I mean, just think about it that way. The Trump administration really came in thinking that the world had been taking advantage of the United States. Instead of America being the indispensable nation to the world, it was kind of an aggrieved nation, uh, a sucker nation. In trade policy, everyone was taking advantage of us. Our, our allies weren't paying their fair share and taking advantage of us. And the response to that was kind of a defiance of the international order that the United States itself created, right? We don't need to play by these rules anymore because these rules no longer work for us. So we'll do things bilaterally instead of multilaterally. We're highly skeptical of international institutions that we think may be compromising our sovereignty. You know, so the symbolic steps are things like jumping out of the Paris Climate Accords and castigating both the WTO and the WHO uh, and the like. So I think if you think in broad terms, that's what the foreign policy agenda was. It wasn't uh, it certainly wasn't an isolationist agenda. I mean, there's still a lot of assertive internationalism, balance of power politics in some ways, more than kind of broad institutional international leadership. Uh, but that was the particular take. And that, of course, was a defiance of what the foreign policy establishment has seen as, you know, the so-called internet liberal international order uh, that had grew out of American <clears throat> power. Uh, during the post-war era and even the post-Cold War era. Now, the, the new people in town, I think, are in many ways uh, foreign, policy, foreign policy establishment traditionalists, right? So I think the biggest change you're going to see from Trump to Biden is really in tone and approach, okay? The tone will be not defiance of the international community, but welcome us back. You know, I think apology tour may be a little too strong. I don't see Biden doing that because I don't think he sees himself having to apologize for Trump, right? That's, that was Trump's problem. But I do think he sees himself mending fences, especially with American allies, but just generally reestablishing or resetting the United States as both a kind of world participant and more importantly, in some ways, a world leader. So just as the initial you know, Trump symbolism was we're going to defy international institutions, Biden's initial symbolism will be the opposite. You know, I think he said on day one, we will get back into the Paris Climate Accord, right? This is more symbolic than substantive, uh, but it's a signal to people uh, both in the country and outside the country uh, about, about priorities. Now, I guess the important thing I think of is how much does this matter substantively? And that depends on the area. I, I mean, I guess if I had, if you push me, I'd say the, the substantive area that might change most is relations with Europe, because Biden and I think the people he's already staffing his national security administration with are Eurocentric traditionalists. You know, the NATO alliance is the key, those relationships 
are the key. You know, one important substantive implication is uh, the Trump the Trump people were enamored of Brexit. They really were skeptical of the EU. They were happy to see Brexit happen. They were going or promising to give the British, you know, an early bilateral trade deal. Uh, Obama had said when Brexit started that don't count on it, Britain. Right? This is more of a Eurocentric focus, and I think Biden will continue that. He's already made noises that, well, you know, we have to see how, for example, uh, the British divorce from the EU comes out. If it comes out with a hard landing and no deal, we're going to think differently about it. If it affects the Good Friday Agreement on Northern Ireland, we'll think differently about it. So I think in terms of Europe, you, you will see a change not only in style, but in substance, more consultation and, and the like. Um, in other areas, I don't think you'll see that big a difference. I think trade is an area where it's very hard to see a lot of daylight between uh, what Trump is likely to do and what Biden is likely to do. And that has to do, uh, I think, primarily with domestic politics, because that, that centrist consensus on free trade really kind of collapsed over time. And you know, you think about it, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in 2016 were making the same kind of arguments about trade. And then guess who joined them? Hillary Clinton, right from the center, uh, defying the TPP that she helped to create. So I, I don't think there's a lot of daylight between Republicans and Democrats on these days on trade policy and between progressive Democrats and so-called centrists. Democrats. And Biden's already signaled this. He said things like, you know, no major trade agreements until we build back better at home. Uh, and I think he knows that you need a lot of political capital in the United States today to move trade liberalization forward. And that may not be the way he wants to spend his political capital. So to, to link these two issues, if our European friends uh, have high expectations that the United States is now going to revert to a you know, 1950s, 60s, or even 1990s style liberal trade policy, uh, they may be disappointed. One of the ideas that you mentioned in your works is this idea of linchpin partnerships. And of course, right now we're talking about Europe, we're talking about what um, a future European-US relationship will look like. Do you think you could quickly define this concept for our viewers? And how do you see America's linchpin partnership shifting um, over the course of the next few years? Yeah, thank you for that. I did write an article on that uh, a year or two back. And the basic idea was that the way the United States uh, ran its international or world order in the post-war period was by creating special relationships with key players, especially in the two core regions of the American order, East Asia and, and Europe. And I focused a lot on Japan and Germany as the powerful players that in effect did America's bidding uh, in those areas and helped support. They were like the primary supporters of, uh, of the United States and of the liberal international order. Uh, I think when you got to the Trump administration rejection of that order, you had this interesting uh, phenomena play out, which was Japan and Germany being more liberal internationalists than the United States and in some ways pinch hitting for the United States. You know, here's the United States that's walked away from the system and Japan and Germany continue to defend it. Or to put it a different way, America's post-war project of socializing countries 
right, to accept the kind of principles that the United States felt were most important was so successful, uh, you know, that the that the students were were more liberal internationalists than the teachers. And you see this with Japan, for example, in keeping alive the Trans-Pacific Partnership, even after the United States walked away from it. I think, though, the, the bigger part of that argument was the failure of the United States to make China a pivotal partner. I mean, that for the United States was the greatest post-war project. And I think by now we have to agree that it failed. I think what America wanted was China that was both an economic partner and a security supporter, not, not a state that might challenge the American-led international order. And I think by certainly by around 2012, you started to see the kind of rumblings, but by 2016, it comes out full blown that the American foreign policy consensus is that this policy failed, that engagement has failed, that China is now more authoritarian, less market oriented, and a more assertive geopolitical challenger, especially in East Asia and maybe one day globally. So when, when I wrote that uh, pivotal partners piece, the main argument in it was the effort by the United States to enlarge that international order uh, beyond the traditional partners to new partners like China and Russia and, and why it didn't work. When you first mentioned this idea of a international liberal order, I kind of thought to myself, well, um, the existence of an order just would follow any power which has significant, I guess, brunt to back its, back its ideology up. And China is obviously a player there. So I think the first question I have is how far do you think that Biden's core rhetoric of making China play by the rules will extend. Do you think that issues like expansionism in the South China Sea will be addressed and in a more, more in a substantive manner, not just in terms of rhetoric? Uh, I think it's an, it's an interesting position or predicament the United States finds itself in because the question of getting China to play by the rules has to face the reality that China is today writing its own rules and or helping to write the rules, I think you could put it. Uh, more broadly. I mean, if you if you look in the, the East Asian space, the United States backed away from Trans-Pacific Partnership and China has just, you know, concluded the RCEP, uh, which the United States is not part of, India is not part of. Uh, the United States in East Asia has talked about moving towards, you know, renaming the area the Indo-Pacific to emphasize the importance of India. And here are the two key players in an Indo-Pacific model outside of the rulemaking apparatus right now uh, of, of at least the world economy side of it. So I think the first challenge for the Biden administration is that you've got co-rulemakers now. We're no longer in a world where the United States says, hey, we made these rules now, are you gonna follow them or not? There'll still be that kind of fight in certain areas, maybe in human, uh, human rights or treatments of minorities, um, also in security areas, but you should think of it differently now. It's, it's a new era where you have two powerful states who are themselves trying to figure out what those rules are. And I think that's key in the South China Sea. We don't really have the kind of you know, late Cold War style rules of engagement where we understand where all the red lines are and we make sure we don't cross them. There's a lot of probing going on. like. How far can we push the United States, nudge them out of this area? In the United States, how do we establish a stand in the South China Sea without provoking some kind of inadvertent war? 
So this is an interesting but dangerous time where the rules are being made as the game is being played between the US and China. If I think of how Biden will be different from Trump on this issue, I think the key difference will be uh, coalitional. I don't think um, the Biden administration will revert back to the old engagement strategy. I think the foreign policy consensus is really that China is a competitor to the United States and needs to be treated as such. The question is how to do that. And if you listen to Biden, even during the, both the debates and the primaries, his main argument was, Trump, you've left a big opportunity on the table. We should be working more closely with our European and Asian allies to form a coalition to try and either contain China or more benignly get it to play by the rules, you know, and integrate it. Uh, so I think that's that's the big change you'll see in China policy. I see. Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm no expert, but I know I've, I've read a bit about um, China expanding its influence. I mean, through economic means. I mean, Africa is a big, big example. Um, I believe Central Europe also has come to the discussion. And so one question I had is um, in the face of RCEP being signed, do you think that Biden would significantly change his view on um I guess, America's use of economic means to expand its influence um, around the globe, um, in contrast to what you said before about free trade and openness um, kind of being um, looked down upon by all members of the political spectrum. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And that is a big challenge for Biden is whether to use the political capital here for the geopolitical purpose or to sort of not push back against what seems like a, a domestic consensus. And I think one, the key area would be the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which of course the Obama-Biden administration um, actually created. Trump killed it, but Congress was very skeptical of it at the end of 2016 anyway, not, not clear it would have passed. So here's the dilemma for Biden. That was a big geopolitical missed opportunity for the United States. Can it be revived? Uh, there is one way it can, but it would take some doing and it would require the Biden people to be willing to invest the political capital to do it. Think of it this way. Uh, the Trump people came in saying, NAFTA is a total disaster. We need to get rid of this. Worst trade deal in ever, right? Well, what did they end up doing? They ended up saying, we're gonna renegotiate it and make it better. Now, whether they actually made it all that much better, uh, that's in the details and probably the answer is not so much. But you can imagine Biden going after TPP and saying, look, TPP, you're right, that was wrong, we didn't do it, it didn't have the kind of labor and environmental standards we needed and data protections and all, we're gonna make it better. We're gonna work with our partners to make it better. And then in effect, rejoin something that we relabeled. So that would be a strategy, a geopolitical and geoeconomic strategy that would help to counter uh, China's growing influence in the, in the economic space. But it would be a heavy lift in the United States because you'd get a lot of opposition from both the right and the left. So it's going to be an interesting question for Biden. Is this, is this a kind of caretaker administration that just wants to do away with the worst excesses of the Trump years? Or does it actually want to move forward in ways uh, that take some picking and choosing in terms of what you're willing to spend your time and capital on? Not clear to me which way that goes yet, but good question.
One of your works looks at the financial crisis impacts on US-China relations specifically. Um, so could I ask you just to briefly, I guess, summarize what this impact has been? Yes, I, I think the financial crisis was significant in changing China's view of its place in a liberal international economic order. And in simple terms, I think the Chinese view changed from we can prosper in a world run by the United States to one, we're not sure the United States is fully capable of running this world economy. In fact, it almost ran it into the ground and crashed it, uh, did crash it, <laughs> and we helped to recover it. But two, we're powerful enough now that we can both remain in this order, but start to shape the rules as opposed to everybody following the American style of capitalism. So I think it was a big moment for China to in effect, feel that its moment had arrived, uh, right, rightly or not. And so there, I think I see it as a turning point in how China viewed uh, the world and its place in it. I was hoping to ask you um, on your view on the possibility of the US renegotiating or re-entering um, an Iran nuclear deal or something similar to that. Oh yeah, so that's a that's a big question and a big challenge uh, for Biden. So you think about the uh, the Iranian nuclear deal. It had one strength and one big weakness. The big strength was it could slow down Iran's acquisition of a nuclear weapon. You know, the argument was if you could keep them a year away for ten years, we'd be doing well. But it did that by focusing exclusively on the nuclear issue and leaving aside. Iran's regional adventurism and making life miserable for the United States and its forces all around the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. That was always the weakness of it. That's why people like Jim Mattis uh, <clears throat> argued against uh, the Iranian nuclear deal. Trump, of course, came in and rejected it and has gone for a maximize pressure on Iran's strategy. But he's also done something else. He's also remade American policy in the Middle East away from you know, the holy grail of solving the Palestinian problem to let's actually play balance of power politics and bring Israel and the Sunni states together. And he's done that with some success. So that's what Biden inherits now. So the dilemma for him is, do we go back to a nuclear deal that a lot of people found flaws in and that in the current environment will alienate both Israel and now a lot of our Sunni partners, right? Or do we reject uh, the nuclear deal and kind of follow Trump's balance of power strategy, which, of course, Biden argued against in the debate, saying, look, you've made it easier for Iran to get a nuclear weapon. So this is a very difficult problem. And it is emblematic, again, of his larger struggle of how much time and effort does he really want to shift back to trying to solve the almost unsolvable Palestinian problem in the Middle East? Does he want to accept that Iran's the main problem and continue the hard line? Uh, one, one strategy that might be practical for Biden in this is to basically accept the parameters as they are today, but still try to re-engage Iran and hold a pretty high standard on what a new deal would look like. In other words, he can tell his constituency that we are at least engaging with them uh, because we think it's really important to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon, but we're not going to let them off easy. We're going to try and correct the flaws of the, of the previous deal. Uh, th this may be an even harder problem for him than 
than China because uh, the Trump people succeeded in basically changing the, the framework and changing the game in American policy in the Middle East. All right, Professor. Well, thanks so much for your time and um, please um, join us next week. Thank you.